Afrika. Og det tar utgangspunkt i eh, en suksess som har blitt til en stor utfordring. Eh, vi har sett over de siste ti årene at eh, helsesystem og helse på det afrikanske eh, kontinentet har blitt stadig bedre. Og eh, som en følge av det så har så ser vi også vittne til en befolkningsvekst som har blitt ganske eksplosiv eh, i Afrika. Det finns en lang rekke ulike estimat. Eh, noen estimat sier at eh, i løpet av de neste 30-40 årene vil vi ha en tilvekst på 15 millioner nye eh, mennesker i eh, arbeidsmarkedet på kontinentet. Eh, I og med at det finnes estimat for ikke lenge siden som sa at i perioden 2010-2035 så må man ha en vekst på 450 millioner arbeidsplasser. Eh, det finnes eh, flere ulike tall for ulike tidsperioder, eh, men jeg tror det generelle poenget er, er svært klart, uavhengig av hvordan det går med eh, fertilitetsrata av den typen spørsmål. Eh, det vi står over, overfor eh, er en stor, eh, stor potensiale og en stor utfordring som handler om å skape arbeid for en voksende eh, befolkning på det afrikanske kontinentet. I tillegg så er det et behov for at disse arbeidsplassene eh, er anstendige. At, de, at når vi skaper eh, millioner arbeidsplasser, så er det ikke i et miljø hvor rettigheter blir trampet på. Eh, og det gir oss en betydelig utfordring. Eh, utfordringer som vi skal ta tak i eh, i dag. Tallet vi ser her på, på skjermen, det er ikke 450, det er 1 million. Og eh, hvorfor er det det? Jo, fordi eh, dette, eh, denne konkurransen i dag, det skal sette et spesielt fokus på hva Norge kan gjøre. Hva er Norges bidrag? Privat næringsliv, eh, offentlige myndigheter, eh, offentlige eller utviklingsfond, eh, og andre virkemiddel. Eh, 450 millioner er et stort tall som vi har vanskelig for å få til oss til. Eh, 1 million er et mye mindre tall, men det er likevel ekstremt svært å si noe om hvilken utfordring vi skal ha for. Jeg er svært glad for at eh, vi har fått de eh, Sagt for at dere er her selvfølgelig, men også for at vi har eh, utmerkede navn på talelista. Eh, vi skal bare eh, get cracking. Eh, først med en innledning eh, fra statssekretær i utenriksdepartementet, Tone Skogen. Eh, jeg tror jeg skal ikke gjøre mer, men nå gir jeg ordet. Vær så god. sammen og takk for invitasjonen til å kunne få starte med å gi noen betraktninger rundt et tema som jeg har vært så heldig å få lov til å jobbe ganske mye med i det, i det siste året. Og et tema som også er veldig viktig for oss 
i utvecklingspolitiken och jag ska prøve att se si lite grann om hvordan liksom, vi tilnærmer oss uh, dette. Så är er det jo selvsagt slik at målet for utvecklingspolitiken er å bidra til, har jeg glemt å skru på denne? Sånn ja, kommer ned med teknikken nå, hører alle enda bedre. Da kan jeg starte igen. Målet for utvecklingspolitiken er å bidra til økt demokratisering, det å realisere menneskerettighetene, men selvsagt å bekjempe fattigdom, som kanskje det aller, aller viktigste. Og bistand vet vi er et kraftig virkemiddel, men det er ikke tilstrekkelig. Og også bærekraftsmålene er tydelige på at bistand alene ikke er nok til å bekjempe fattigdom. Og vi vet at mens bistand utgjorde ca. 50 procent av kapitaltilgangen til utviklingsland i 1990, så er det samme tallet i dag gått under 20 procent. I dag er det handel og private investeringer som er den viktigste drivkraften for fattigdomsbekjempelse i de aller fleste utviklingsland. Og derfor må bistanden brukes som en katalysator for å utløse større investeringer og ikke minst det vi kaller nasjonal ressursmobilisering. Vi kan ikke lykkes med å skape økonomisk utveckling eller å nå våre utvecklingspolitiska mål uten et nært samarbeid med privat sektor. Traditionell bistand i sig selv blir for liten til å få til de store løftene. Privat kapital og industriell utveckling er helt nødvendig. Og landene selv etterspør i stadig større grad investeringer og handel snarere enn bistand. Og de ser også dette som veien videre. Og under det årlige nordisk-afrikanske utenriksministermøtet som fant sted her i Oslo i maj, var et av de viktigste temaene nettopp jobbskaping. Og Afrikas 54 land har en felles utfordring, det å skape nye arbeidsplasser og det haster. Ifølge Verdensbanken må det skapes over 10 millioner nye afrikanske arbeidsplasser hvert år for å holde tritt med befolkningsutviklingen. Og ifølge anslagene så vil Afrika i rundt 2034 ha cirka 1,1 milliarder mennesker i arbeidsproduktiv alder. Og inntekt fra lønnet arbeid har langt større effekt på fattigdomsreduksjon enn andre typer pengeoverføringer. Vi vet at en av ti arbeidsplasser i utviklingsland skapes i privat sektor. Og derfor er også jobbskaping et centralt element i norsk støtte til, utvikling, til næringsutvikling i utviklingsland. Genom arbeid og inntekt bedret nasjonal økonomi og en bærekraftig privat sektor, danner vi grundlaget for bedre og ivareta menneskerettigheter, ikke minst også kvinners mulighet til deltakelse i økonomisk aktivitet, til å bygge varige demokratiske strukturer og et godt styresett. Og skal vi få dette til, må vi altså samarbeide tettere med privat sektor, både her hjemme og ute men også arbeide i en symbiose med lokale myndigheter og civilt samfunn. Vi må ha en felles forståelse, et felles ønske om målsetningen for det vi gjør. 
Kommersiella aktörer ska uppnå sina kommersiella mål för sina ägare och vi ska uppnå våra utrikespolitiska mål. Men gjort riktigt och strategiskt är er det ingen motsägelse i detta, snarare tvärt emot. SDGene sätter målen och indikerar kursen och det är er disse vi ska styra efter. Hvordan ska vi arbeta med detta framöver? Och vi är er allerede gått igång. Tidligere i år blev stortingsmelding 35, den som het Sammen om jobben, ferdigbehandlet i Stortinget och med bred tilslutning til de hovedlinjene som der var eh, trukket opp. Og nå setter vi anbefalingene og føringene fra den ut i livet. Og gjennom denne meldingen så legger regeringen upp til en styrket og strategisk innrettet støtte til næringsutvikling i utviklingsland. Så har vi ingått en MOU med NO om att jobba tätare sammen med privat sektor i en utvecklingskontext. Avtalen indikerar en gensidig intresse och avhängighet för att lyckas. Och vi har allerede den första operationaliseringen som följer av denna avtalen. Under utrikesministerns nyliga besök i Mosambik så blev det underskrevet en intentionsavtal mellan ambassaden i Maputo och Brynilgruppen med det mål för öje och sammen med lokala aktörer och civilsamhället utveckla kärsjönötssektorer i landet. Och detta vill resultera i att fler bönder vill få arbete och intäkt, men man kan genombygga bearbetningsindustrin og øke eksportintektene ved å selge cashew med et høyere bearbeidingsnivå til en høyere pris. Og det er nettopp slik vi skal arbeide. Fokusere på horisontale verdikjeder og fjerning av flaskehalser som hindrer utvikling i en bransje eller en sektor. Behovet for dette gäller de fleste sektorer, lav- eller høyteknologi, produktion eller tjenestenæringer. Da kan vi skape vekst, utveckling och bärkraftiga arbetsplatser. Viktig för att fjärna flaskehalsarna är er ordningar som leverer yrkes- och fagutdanning där hvor det trengs, baserat på näringens egna önskemål och krav. Vi ska med andra ord levere efterfrågelsedriven utdanning där hvor behovet finns. Den nya ordningen för yrkes- och fagutdanning blev lanserad i september. Och denna ordningen vill ligge i störelsesorden upp mot 500 miljoner kronor över fem år och ska förvaltas av Norad och SIU. Så var det en liten förstegångsutlysning för ordningen på 50 miljoner kronor, en pilotutlysning med relativt kort frist och det kom in söknader för över 600 miljoner kronor. Som med andra ord Det kan virke som vi har truffet riktigt med den ordningen i hvert fall. Og utdanning er det nettopp for att göra mennesker i stand til å få en jobb og ta vare på sig selv og sin familie skal bidra til, og slik at de også kan være aktører i eget samfunn. Vi vet att i mange utvecklingsland er det manglende kobling mellan behoven i arbetsmarknaden og den kompetensen ungdom får genom utdanning. 
Så jeg er også glad for å si at regjeringen ved det budsjettet som vi la frem for ikke så alt for lenge siden, når målet om å doble utdanningssatsingen i utviklingsland i denne stortingsperioden. Vi mener at det også er et veldig viktig bidrag med tanke på jobbskaping og den effekt som en bedret utdanningssatsing har. Så litt om Norfund, som er et av Norges viktigste virkemidler rettet mot utvikling av privat sektor i Tatjeland. Dette får vi sikkert høre mer om fra Kjell Roland senere i dag. Norfunds oppgave, vet dere sikkert, er å bidra til utvikling gjennom lønnsomme og bærekraftige investeringer. Og fondet har investert mer enn 15 milliarder kroner i omlag 700 selskaper i utviklingsland, og dette sysselsetter ca. 382 000 mennesker, en ganske imponerende vilhelsing. Britiske Overseas Development Institute, som vi skal få høre fra her senere, anslår at en økning av DFI-enes investeringer på 10 prosent fører til en økonomisk vekst på 1,3 prosent i lavintektsland i Afrika sør for Sahara. Om 5-6 år vil DFI-enes investeringer være større enn ODA-midlene. Regjeringen ønsker, som jeg var inne på, å satse sterkere på katalytisk bistand, altså bistand som utløser innsats fra andre, spesielt når det gjelder næringslivet. La meg trekke frem Yara som et godt eksempel på hvordan norsk næringsliv kan slå seg sammen med bistandsorganisasjoner for å fremme næringsutvikling. Yara jobber sammen med Agra og tanzanianske myndigheter for klimasmart landbruk, og sammenkobling av verdikjeden innen jordbrukssektoren. Dette er et konkret bidrag til å gi folk på landsbygda, der fortsatt flesteparten av de fattige bor, nye muligheter, og det er et bidrag til mer inkluderende nasjonal vekst. Land som ønsker å tiltrekke seg utenlandske investorer og bedrifter må få på plass en velfungerende offentlig forvaltning, som bidrar til forutsigbare rammebetingelser og ikke minst mindre produksjon. Norge bidrar gjerne til dette på de områder hvor vi har spesielt relevant og etterspurt kompetanse. Om nevne her kort, olje for utvikling, skatt for utvikling, fisk for utvikling, som vi opplever er høyt etterspurte programmer i utviklingsland. Og la meg, før jeg avslutter, også bare veldig kort nevne utviklingsbankene. De har et breddeperspektiv på utvikling og samtidig faglig og finansiell styrke til å gjennomføre tyngre infrastrukturprogrammer og investere i lands finansforvaltning og sosiale tjenester. Et eksempel. Norge støtter Afrikabanken i det arbeid de gjør med å styrke finansforvaltningen i utvalgte nasjoner. Og så har vi sett noen gledelige resultater som innebærer at Skatteinntektene har kommet opp over 20 prosent i enkelte land. En veldig positiv utvikling med andre ord. Tema for dagen i dag er hvordan skape jobber i Afrika. Vårt svar er at et nært og godt samarbeid mellom myndighetene her og der ute, sivile samfunnsaktører og kanskje først og fremst privat sektor, er det riktige svaret på dette. For hvem? I norsk utviklingspolitikk står alltid kvinner, svakere stilte grupper og alle de unge arbeidsledige helt øverst på agendaen. Men vi må heller ikke glemme 
at det å skape økonomisk utvikling er en prosess hvor vi må begynne der vekst og økonomisk aktivitet først kan få fotfeste, for deretter å sikre at ringvirkningene kommer de svakeste til gode på en rask, inkluderende og god måte. Takk for oppmerksomheten. Tusen takk skal du ha. Vi ser frem til å se deg også igjen i paneldiskusjonen som skal følge snart etter at vi nå skal høre fra vår keynote speaker som er Steven Gell fra Overseas Development Institute basert i London. Steven han er seniorforsker ved ODI og jobber spesielt med private sector development. Han er sørafrikaner, har vært rådgiver for Mbeki, hvis jeg ikke husker galt. Og han har jobbet flere år med forskning og erfaring bak seg, både i Sørafrika, i Kanada, i Sveits og altså nå i London. Og vi ser frem til å høre din keynote. Vær så god. Først vil jeg takke til Norwegian Council for Afrika for inviting ODI og inviting meg her. Det er min andre gang i Norge, men min første gang i Oslo. Jeg var ganske brukelig i Bergen for en holiday weekend, som var veldig pleasant. Men jeg har vært i Oslo. Så jeg vil snakke i dag om arbeidsplasser og arbeidsplasser i Afrika. Selv om jeg ser at titlene Conference is one million jobs in Africa. Johan asked me to talk about 450 million jobs in Africa, which is uh, a very, very big number, 450 million. Uh, 18 million jobs each year over 25 years, according to the demographic projections uh, that uh, have been put together for Africa is what is needed. And I was asked, I think, last Tuesday uh, by the Norwegian Council to come and speak here. And on Wednesday morning, I think the 450 million became much, much bigger uh, when we discovered the results of the uh, US election. Because I think that the um, consequences of that election and the new administration that will come in in January are going to be very um, damaging, very negative for uh, international trade, international finance, uh, and for growth in the world economy, and uh, therefore, I think, also for um, growth possibilities and job creation possibilities in Africa. <coughs> so, you know, when I was invited, it was 450 million, but by the time I started to think about what to say, I felt that had become uh, around one billion, uh, which is even more daunting. Um, what I thought I would talk about primarily today is uh, processes of industrialization uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, an alternative path to that. Because although the uh, numbers of jobs that need to be created 
uh, are very large. At the end of the day, I think uh, governments and indeed private sector enterprises from outside of Africa um, have, there's a limit on, on what can uh, be achieved by their intervention. And I think we need to recognize that a lot of the jobs that need to be created for people in Africa will have to be created by those people themselves. Um, in uh, 2013-2014, the World Bank and other organizations did some estimates of uh, job uh, requirements and job creation in Africa and concluded that the vast majority of those jobs uh, would in the end be created in what they called household enterprises. In other words, the informal sector and enterprises which mostly would be a single person or a single person plus some members of their family uh, and therefore created by the people themselves. In the discussions of the sort that we're having today, however, we need to look at uh, more formal uh, and direct industrialization paths. And in the context of Africa, I have argued and, and would like to, to discuss with you today uh, that there's two contrasting strategies that we face. The first one focused on natural resources, uh, both agricultural and mineral, and the second focused on uh, what I call their light manufacturing assembly by unskilled labor. In other words, uh, um, manufacturing involving the uh, assembling of small, uh, low-value consumer goods, clothing, footwear, electronics, household electronics, toys, those sorts of products uh, by unskilled labor in, 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 uh, um, in large factories. Um, in my view, these are two contrasting paths. Uh, the first one, the natural resource-based path, is one that uh, speaks to uh, what are often seen by economists as Africa's current comparative advantages in land and in natural, uh, in mineral extraction. Many countries in Africa, of course, have very rich mineral resources, including uh, my own country, South Africa, but many others. And, uh, uh, some of the same countries as well as others have, as uh, the Secretary of State mentioned, uh, agricultural um, resources and agricultural industries which will um, allow for development along that path. Um, I think what's important to emphasize is that both of those need to, uh, whether it's agricultural or mineral, need to be focused on export uh, processing, export zones, uh, and increasing exports into the global economy. Meaning that as world trade uncertainties increase, exports, uh, demand for Africa's exports on those uh, particular commodities are not going to be growing as fast as, as we would like. The second part, I think, uh, in which is contrasting producing the consumer goods, or assembling the consumer goods, uh, is a very different part, which is often seen to be uh, contrary to Africa's comparative advantages in natural resources. Uh, Africa has not been, as I think we all know, uh, a very strong manufacturing 
um, region of the world. Uh, and so arguments in favor of building manufacturing industry in Africa now are seen to go against its sort of natural uh, comparative advantage. But nonetheless, there is increasing uh, support and analysis arguing that this, uh, this is um, a potential path for Africa. Also, it must be emphasized, focused on exporting, not focused on domestic markets. <coughs> Um, exporting of clothing, of footwear, and so on into global markets in Europe, in North America, uh, and in Asia, not simply producing for the domestic market. So both of these paths, I think, share the export focus. And I think this is very important to emphasize uh, when one uh, goes to Africa and speaks to uh, policymakers and even to uh, managers and owners of private enterprise, one finds still great emphasis, I think an overemphasis, on producing for the domestic market um, and not focusing on exports. Uh, and I think that that is a mindset that has to be changed. Nonetheless, I would argue that the natural resource-based approach and the um, light manufacturing assembly approach are contrasting strategies. Uh, because they have very different implications for a number of features uh, uh, of policy and of um, uh, economic activity in the rest of the economy. They have different uh, implications for macroeconomic policy and particularly for the exchange rate, the natural resource-based approach, particularly when it's focused on uh, minerals and uh, oil and gas extractors, uh, has often been seen, and I think Norway, this is a very familiar story, often been seen to lead to overvalued exchange rates, which then undermine the competitiveness of other sectors of the economy, particularly uh, manufacturing. So in that sense, the macroeconomic implications of the two paths, I think, are potentially uh, in conflict with one another. But there are, also, uh, there are also big differences around trade policy and uh, foreign direct investment policy, in particular um, the implications for enterprise development, uh, where the manufacturing um, assembly approach, I think, offers much more promise for local enterprises to uh, develop around the value chains that those uh, assembly operations are part of. Uh, competition within the domestic economy is, I think, much more strongly uh, promoted by uh, the manufacturing assembly path, and also different uh, implications for the demands in the economy on enterprise management. Um, because the firms in uh, the assembly path are much more numerous, uh, and tend to be, should be large, but also many small ones, and therefore the requirements for the number of managers and their skill levels, I think, is, uh, is quite um, high. Uh, and this is an issue which I think uh, has to be addressed by uh, policy, both in those countries themselves as well as outside. And this is something that I'll come back to. Furthermore, um, the implications for services, particularly infrastructural services, 
uh, and, and for urbanization are contrasting. Um, the light manufacturing assembly approach is very what we would call transactions intensive. That is, to put together uh, clothing, to put together electronics, to put together footwear requires a firm to undertake many transactions to bring together the different components of or, or pieces of the product uh, and then to distribute that product uh, to in the market uh, is a, a much more complex process than simply extracting oil and gas, extracting iron ore or gold from the ground and shipping it abroad. There are many more transactions with many more partners within the value chain. And that puts much greater demands on infrastructure, uh, on high quality infrastructure and low cost infrastructure um, as well as the services uh, supported by that infrastructure and furthermore um, uh, requires a very different focus, much heavier focus on, on urbanization uh, because it uh, involves the movement of people into cities uh, to cluster together in um, groups of productive enterprises which then also, uh, those people also require obviously housing and urban infrastructure services which have to be uh, delivered and which are in very short supply, scarce supply in Africa. So I think the light manufacturing assembly approach has very particular requirements or demands uh, which would need to be addressed um, and which I think should and could be addressed by uh, policy um, uh, if it is to go forward. Um, and I think those are, are different. I think to some extent it is a choice that has to be made between the two different strategies, one focusing on natural resources and the second on, uh, on the manufacturing industry. Let me uh, turn now to some of the challenges. I've already mentioned some of them, but let me go through the, uh, the list uh, here on the slide, some of the challenges facing light manufacturing in Africa. The first is that um, many of these firms face low profitability, and this leads to uh, what we call a missing middle of firms. In other words, uh, a situation where you've got a, a small number of large enterprises uh, and then a very large number of small enterprises which cannot grow and have not been able to grow into mid-sized firms. So there's no, not many firms in the middle of, of the range, of the size range, uh, which are important for the light manufacturing industry. Why does this happen? The first reason, I think, is that uh, what we call indirect costs or costs beyond the factory floor are very high in Africa particularly uh, of infrastructural and distribution services. So energy costs, electricity costs, transport costs, uh, communications costs, water costs, all of these are um, very high uh, costs facing firms in Africa, which in fact uh, mitigate against their profitability. And even though many firms in Africa are productive when we look at the output on the factory floor itself, the high cost that they have to pay for infrastructural inputs into uh, the operation of the factory overhead costs 
and the difficulties, the time cost in addition of distributing the product of World Festival, uh, collecting together, assembling the inputs uh, at the factory and then distributing the product once it's finally produced, those costs tend to undermine profitability. Um, so there's a, a divergence between what happens on the factory floor and what <coughs> happens beyond the factory floor, which tends to um, make life very difficult for small manufacturing and medium-sized manufacturing enterprises. And one of the major reasons for that is what I refer to on the slide as incumbency. That is, uh, what is meant by that is that the um, infrastructure sectors and distribution and logistics sectors uh, which uh, provide these sorts of high-cost services tend to be uh, monopolized by a very small number of firms which are therefore able to raise their prices. And so a big reason for inefficient service delivery and high-cost service delivery is that a few firms have been able to get into those sectors and prevent other firms from entering and therefore improving competition in those sectors to uh, lower the cost downstream to users. And so that uh, has made a big difference to African firms' profitability and is regarded as a major reason for why we have this missing middle of firms which would have to be addressed to, uh, to promote industrial development and job creation in Africa. Additionally, we, we find high labor costs in Africa, ironically. Even though it's a low-wage arena, high-skilled labor is high cost uh, because it's scarce. And so um, management is able to, uh, in essence, protect its incomes through that mechanism. And that, even though it's not necessarily very efficient, and that, in turn, raises costs for the firms and undermines their profitability. So that's the second reason for low profitability. What we find uh, related to the point I just made is that entrepreneurial, that is risk-taking skills and management skills, and I think that these are not the, exactly the same thing. They often talked about as if they are the same thing. I think that they are quite different, but both of these are scarce in Africa. And they're scarce, I think, in not just in the private sector, but also in the public sector. We need entrepreneurs in the public sector, I would argue, as much as in the private sector. So, uh, because it's the public sector that has to address not just policy, but also delivery of public services, organizing institutions and enterprises which will do that. And so that uh, is a scarce resource which needs to be addressed. Limited agglomeration and the benefits of urbanization is absolutely essential to uh, build industrial sectors. Um, we have in Africa high concentrations and increasingly large concentrations of people in the cities, but we don't necessarily have the benefits that that brings, uh, what I call their increasing returns in terms of flows of information and knowledge, which promote innovation, imitation, and uh, new practices by productive enterprises. So all of these, I think, uh, would benefit from being uh, in Africa. All these scarcities would be addressed 
uh, if Africa was increasingly inserted into global value chains. And I think it's important here to go back to the distinction between the natural resource-based part and the industrial part, because the, although Africa is part of global value chains in terms of providing minerals and agricultural products uh, into global markets, what we find there is firstly very short value chains, and secondly, Africa is very much at the beginning of those value chains, at the initiating point. And so, so many of the benefits in those value chains don't flow upstream, if you like, to the initiation point, to the point where the minerals are extracted from the ground or the products are, uh, uh, the crops rather, are grown. Whereas in manufacturing, what we find is that uh, enterprises are embedded much more deeply into the value chain and uh, flows of information come from both upstream and from downstream, which I think enhance productivity. And so I think there's a big benefit to that, uh, which, which needs to be thought about. I've only got a few minutes to let, let, let me say there's a lot of discussion about whether or not there's a global shift going on in uh, manufacturing assembly in the sense that firms in China are finding their costs are going up and they are having to adapt. There are many options for them to adapt, although many people argue jobs will flow from China to Africa, and they, I think they will, but it is not an automatic process. Firms in China ha have many options. They can in increase their technology and shed labor they can move to new locations within China, they can move to new locations outside of China, but not in Africa. Asia is already receiving, I think, many uh, Chinese firms' operations, uh, which Africa has yet to catch up with. Um, it's also important, I think, to emphasize that these location decisions by Chinese firms are part of a broader value chain process. So the Chinese firm itself is not making the decision, should we invest in Ethiopia or in Kenya or in Vietnam or, or Laos. Those decisions are made in collaboration with their customers, with the customers particularly located in uh, uh, Europe, in North America, and in other parts of Asia, who have a big uh, influence on where Chinese manufacturing operations end up moving towards. I'll skip these, we'll just talk a little bit about the um, shifts in China. Briefly, East Asian success stories. What are the key lessons that we learned? East Asia, I think, has been a success over the last 50 years in different countries, Korea, Taiwan, China, obviously, but also countries like Bangladesh, Vietnam more recently, in terms of job creation through manufacturing. And I would argue that there are two key lessons which need to be learned. The first is that uh, very narrow and well-defined national goals are set by the political leadership, and public resources are allocated to support those national goals. And in almost every case, uh, it's been export growth which has been the key goal. And that allows the overcoming of sectional interests. The second key lesson, I think, is that there's been an alignment of the incentives facing individual enterprises on the one hand with that overall national goal. 
And that has meant that investment by enterprises, by individual enterprises, has driven national growth, national growth rather. This has taken different forms in different countries. In China, I think the Communist Party actually has played a very important role in this, which uh, um, I'm happy to elaborate. I don't have time now. In, but in, in connecting the incentives for individual enterprises, state-owned, uh, to invest with a broad goal set at the national level. In Africa, um, well, let me just say that Korea and China are both countries, Korea certainly in the 1960s and 70s, which is when they had their success in industrialization, and China more recently, both countries in which uh, democracy participation uh, from below in politics and empowerment were not strongly emphasized, let's put it uh, that way. Um, and so the question is, are uh, these success stories possible in a different kind of political system? In Africa today, uh, we look at Ethiopia, we look at Rwanda as, let's call them, budding success stories, uh, where this process may be beginning to happen uh, to some uh, extent. And both of those countries, I think, uh, we, we are increasingly clear, are similarly countries where uh, popular political participation is uh, constrained in important respects. Um, so I think there's an important tension there between economic success uh, through this path and democracy uh, on the other hand. Conclusion. <coughs> um, what I, uh, the first point, what I've just said. Ultimately, the challenge, I think, is a political economy challenge. Firstly, to uh, develop a state which is able to lead an industrialization path uh, of the sort that uh, has succeeded in East Asia, which is a very big challenge in African political circumstances, partly because of the difficulties in Africa, different from Asia, I think, of um, uh, overcoming sectional interests to uh, bring everybody together in favor of a single national goal. But also, I think very importantly, to go back to what I was saying earlier, because of the presence already in many African countries of incumbents, firms which are dominating certain key industries, infrastructure industries and the financial system in particular, and which are, as a result, raising costs for downstream users. And so that is also, I think, part, changing that is part of the political economy challenge, which at the end of the day has to be addressed domestically within those countries. What is the role of development partners? Well, I, I list four things there, which will be very familiar to you. Firstly, foreign direct investment. Very importantly, foreign direct investment, and I should have added trade, in the context of global value chains. Trade and investment today is happening within the context of these value chains. And to talk about them uh, as separate and outside of that um, is, I think, old-fashioned, and we need to change our thinking. Secondly, training, but not simply uh, skills training for shop floor work or even technical training and engineering. I think the most important kind of training 
that can be provided and is to address the skill shortage in management and entrepreneurialism. And that is where countries like this one and many others in Europe have succeeded and some of the lessons of that I think and the uh, ability to do that needs to be um, transferred to developing countries in Africa. It's much more difficult and therefore and more important to take on as a challenge than uh, purely technical training, even high school technical training. Thirdly, infrastructure uh, and infrastructure provision. Again, the Secretary of State uh, referred to that. Um, but the key issue here is competition, introducing competition and greater regulation to lower the costs of electricity and energy, of transport and so on. And then finally, uh, standards, um, particularly around the environment and, and around social and labor issues, uh, where you know, we, we want to see, of course, industrialization, but we want to see industrialization which addresses these standards rather than uh, delaying them. So I think there's a lot of work that can be done uh, and should be done by the development partners. Uh, how many jobs that will create, I think you know, we can make our estimates uh, before this, this all happens. Um, and you know, I don't think we will get to our 450 million making those estimates. But I think nonetheless, we have to uh, begin this process and uh, start addressing the challenges as soon as possible so that uh, we begin to, to reduce the size of the, of the job needs. Thank you very much. Thank you.